morning. Uh, my name is Mark, and the Old Testament reading is found in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord, who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Blair. The New Testament reading found in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 13. But watch out, or else this freedom of yours might be a problem for those who are weak. Suppose someone sees you, the person who has knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. Won't the person with a weak conscience be encouraged to eat the meat sacrificed to false gods? The weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You sin against Christ if you sin against your brothers and sisters and hurt their weak consciences this way. This is why, if food causes the downfall of my brother or sister, I won't eat meat ever again, or else I may cause my brother or sister to fall. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Janelle. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four to 40 But when the Pharisees heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, he, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Well, this series through the book of 1 Corinthians has certainly... um, stirred up a number of fun conversations, and uh, I've enjoyed hearing from you either uh, by phone or by email throughout the last couple of weeks, and last week was probably our most um, delicate or perhaps controversial, maybe not controversial, but just maybe delicate in the number of topics we were navigating, uh, sermon to date, and so I was relieved just to have gotten through it and to feel like, you know, okay, I think the Lord, you know, spoke to us here, and I get out in the lobby, and one of you, you know who you are, approaches me right after and says, so Glenn, what do you think about marijuana? (laughs) Haven't we covered enough for one day? (laughs) And uh, I suppose in some ways doing a a series like this has, has made you actually believe that the scriptures have something to say to us, which is a very good thing. One of the things we've um, reiterated each week is in journeying through this letter to the church in Corinth, we've reminded ourselves that in a city of about 250,000 people, we have a church that's maybe about 100 people. And it's a church made up of of very young believers and young converts. And so Paul, having spent about a year and a half in the city with them, now is writing a letter to them and corresponding with them, helping this young congregation to not lose its faith. But the pressures that surrounded this young church were immense. Pressures from a culture that valued status, a culture that that regarded um, um, achievement and wealth the new rich, the nouveau riche, the, the, the people that had made something for themselves. This was the kind of dominant flow of the day that said, listen, if you don't do this, if you don't make a name for yourself, if you don't find a way to be significant or to have status, then you don't matter. But it was also a culture that was very much obsessed with sexuality, and that's why the last few weeks have been so fun, because we've had to talk about all of this stuff. But I think, I think the, the, one of the overarching themes I want you to catch in this book 
is that it is possible to be the people of God within the world. It is possible to live as the people of God in a way that is contrary to, that is a way that rejects a lot of the premises of the prevailing culture. Sometimes as Christians, we get nervous when we see the world around us changing. We say, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? What kind of a world are our children going to grow up in? And all of this sort of thing. But there is encouragement to know that while we may not like this, the church has actually been here before. And for Paul, if the gospel could take root in a city like Corinth, which it did, then the gospel can take root anywhere. And if a church can thrive even in a culture in a city like Corinth, then the people of God can be the people of God no matter where we are. But that doesn't mean there's not issues to navigate. So with the question that came to me last week, I think so many of us want to know, okay, so what does the Bible say about this? And with respect to you know, other approaches, the Bible is not an answer manual. And if you think that it is, you might find yourself frustrated because you might want to say, okay, so where is that page about this? And, and where is the section that deals with this question? And I've got this question. And I just want to know where I can get the answer out of Scripture. The thing to do is not to come to Scripture with our predefined questions. The thing, the thing to do is to come to the Word of God and stand under it and say, Holy Spirit, give me eyes to hear, give me eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand. Help us to see what's going on in here. And often what the scripture does is it reframes our questions. It doesn't just give us straightforward answers. Oh, you're looking for this. Turn to page 67, you know. It says, no, you know what? There's a different paradigm through which you're supposed to view the world. And when you take on this new lens or this new paradigm, it, you end up reframing your questions. And then, then the word of God is this living thing that begins to speak into our day and into our age. Now, we've been dealing with some questions in, in chapter 5, 6, and 7 that Paul felt a certain amount of strength in. Now we're about to get to a section of the letter in what we've divided up as chapters 8, 9, and 10 that Paul deals more delicately with, more pastoral issues. So let's start. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. Now this is important that, I, that it's in quotes because Paul is not saying all of us possess knowledge. Paul is saying back to them a, a saying or an axiom that they had. They had this saying in their day. All of us possess knowledge. It'd be a little bit like our saying Everybody knows. And so they had this, everybody knows how this works. And Paul says, yeah, yeah, that may be true. But that kind of knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. And if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. We'll get to that verse in a second. The subject of this chapter or this particular question Paul's addressing is about meat offered to idols. Now, it's funny because I was talking with my parents this morning. I can remember, they certainly remember uh, going to someone's home, the home of a Buddhist family or friend and uh, them having an altar there where there actually were certain, you know, food items that were offered to them, oranges, in which as a child I thought, what's wrong with eating an orange? I mean, I know it's on this little red altar, but it's an orange, you know? And so... If you've lived in another culture, perhaps, the food offered to an idol thing is a real question, but 
for probably the majority of us, you're, you didn't just go last night to a temple and eat, you know, ribeye from, you know, Ganesh or something. You know, no, that wouldn't be true. That wouldn't happen because Hindus and beef. But anyway, uh, um, you, you, you wouldn't have done that. <laughs> uh, see, it's been too long for me. But this has to do with, with, with another issue where we want to say, okay, so, so what is this a little bit like in our day? Meat in the first century was a treat. It was a rare thing. In fact, it was kind of a, a dividing line in the way of uh, economic status, that wealthy people had access to meat and poor people did not. And so there were some people who, when they were invited to a party at which there was meat, this was like, oh my gosh, we get to eat meat. Something other than our porridge or, or you know, this sort of slop that they were used to having. And there's something more interesting uh, you can tell I'd never make a good vegetarian. <laughs> and so there's, there's a little bit of the socioeconomic divide that's going on in Corinth where the rich who have access to meat are saying, what? There's no problems. And the others who don't have access to meat are kind of clinging to a religious justification and saying, well, that all, you know, all meat is sort of... Now, this is also a day where there's temple food where just about every meat you got, even from the marketplace, had passed through the temple at some point. And so it was tainted at the very least. But this, cha- and, and we'll get into that issue a little bit more in chapter 10. But even in this issue, there is this, there is this, um, idol food. There's temple food and there's idol food. And, and Paul's using this phrase, idol food. What do, we, what do you do about this? Temples in the first century were also the locations for large parties. Not everybody was wealthy enough to have a large home with a, with a nice triclinium area, you know, for, for parties. And so when they wanted to throw a big event, they, they rented the room at the temple. And so again, people were wanting to know, can I, can I eat here? I mean, is this, is this okay? But maybe even before getting into the specifics of this, one of the things to observe that's happening in this little congregation in Corinth is the creation of labels. The creation of labels. So you have people saying, well, we are the ones who know, and the ones who don't know are called the quote-unquote weak. There's something interesting that happens when we become convinced that we are right. We create an other, quote-unquote. Do you know what I mean by that? An other? Someone who is not you, someone who is less than you, someone who is beneath you, someone who just, oh, I I feel so bad for you. This is sort of like that moment in the Gospels where the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that you have not made me like other men, other people. This is that other. See, the Corinthian Christians had developed these labels, and they, because they developed these labels, it allowed them to say, well, we are the ones who know. And you are the ones who don't. I wonder if there's this bit of progression here where certainty can lead to the creating of an other and then allows us to maybe bully them with words and opinions and actions. See, it's interesting. Paul says knowledge puffs up. One of the commentaries I was reading said this. Paul uses the noun here for knowledge as a way of of showing knowledge that is all wrapped up. Something that is not, um, you, that you're not growing in, but something that you've, you've already got with a ribbon on it. And then he says, listen, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. There, that word know is in the verb form to, to sort of connote, denote this 
continual, graduating, growing in learning and knowing. And you wonder here if there's this, this thing that happens to us and we say, you know what, I already know all there is to know. I already know what's a sin and what's not a sin. I already know all of these things. And because I know and you don't know, I'm better than you. And the label for me is those with knowledge. And the label for you is the weak. Those aren't even parallel labels. It wasn't strong and weak. It was those who know and those who are, oh, those cute little, those, the weak. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, is this what happens here when you begin to become sure of your own way and you create an other and then that allows you to kind of impose your will with them? The argument went roughly like this, and you can see it there in verses 4 through 6, but the argument basically goes like this. Those with knowledge said, there's only one God. And since there's only one God, these idols have no power. And since these idols have no power, there's no harm in eating food offered to idols. And Paul kind of affirms this. He says, yes. And then he quotes this thing that is, many scholars think, is an early early version of a creedal statement where Paul says, yes, there is no God but our God and through Jesus and all this stuff. It's this kind of early creedal formulation. So Paul, in a way, seems to be saying to those with knowledge, you're right. And yet you're wrong. You're right. But there's something you're not thinking about. And that's why he leads in verse two with this question of, does it puff up or does it Build up. Now, building is an important image throughout this letter. Paul talks earlier about how we are God's building, and then he says how we, that building is God's temple. And later he'll continue to, to, to stretch out this metaphor. But the idea of building something is a slow, methodical work, but the idea of puffing up something is inflated, is false, is a little bit like a bouncy castle. <laughs> now, a bouncy castle is fun. For a night, for an evening, for a Saturday kids' time. All the kids are like, sweet, can we get some of those? But a bouncy castle is not this castle. Durham Castle, built in the 1000s, stone upon stone, all of this history. And I've seen this in person a number of times, and it's breathtaking. Back to the bouncy castle, puffs up. Back to Durham Castle, builds up. And Paul says, do you, do you see what you're doing? Like, when you cling to this sort of way of going about things, all you're doing is puffing yourself up. But you know what? Even that's not really that impressive. Like, should I applaud for you? You're pu- it's an inflated, it's a false sense of importance. It's a false sense of, of superiority. And really what Paul is saying is if you get this idea of Christian community, you would be thinking about what builds up. But here's the trick. Building up is slow, careful, methodical work. Now keep that metaphor, keep those images in your mind as we work through this chapter. Because it's easy to kind of say, well, it's Jesus and me. I know this. I know all there is to know. I've got it. And you may be right, but all you've done is made yourself a bouncy castle. Instead of saying, what about my brothers and my sisters? How can we together be a great castle? 
Now that's much slower work, and I got to pay attention to people's stories and particulars, and I, I, I don't know. It's much easier to just get knowledge that's all wrapped up so I can be puffed up. I'm a castle, but you're a bouncy castle. <laughs> There's something better that we can be together. Skip down in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. This is Paul. He's been away for, for a while, but he knows. He says, listen, guys, did you forget? There's other people in this community that you belong to and that they belong to you, and not everyone thinks the way you do. But some through former associations with idols. If you're into circling or underlining, circle that word associations. Some through former associations with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed and the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. See, we think of maturity as taking responsibility for yourself. But the gospel calls us to a different view of community and maturity. It says, actually, this is maturity is when you begin to take responsibility for someone else. We kind of have to say, well, you know, it's good. As long as I can be responsible for my own actions, I know what I'm doing. I know where I can handle myself. I know if I do this, I'm fine. I'm fine. I know where my limits are. Right, but do you know where her limits are? Or where his limits are? Maturity is not simply taking responsibility for yourself but for someone else. This goes all the way back to Genesis, doesn't it? Where Cain says, what? Am I my brother's keeper? And God's saying, yes. That to see ourselves as this new community that Christ is forming is to see us as belonging to one another. That I'm not just responsible for myself, I'm responsible for you. All right, let's break this down practically just a little bit. What questions do we ask? What lens? What does this mean for our lens, for our grid? The Corinthians kind of just had one question. You remember this from an earlier chapter? Their only question was, is it lawful? Or in our kind of language, is it allowed? And this is, this is what we as Christians, this tends to be just like us. It's the only question we ask. Hey, hey, pastor, can I? Do you think it's all right if I? Will I go to hell if I? <laughs> That's my favorite. Because <laughs> depending on what mood I'm in, I might just say yes. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Is it allowed? What if? And you saw this question, remember the Corinthians said, everything is permissible, all is lawful. Another one of their great slogans. This was a slogan church. If Twitter was around, they would have been tweeting and retweeting these, baby. All is lawful, all is lawful. Everyone knows, everyone knows. Retweet, retweet, retweet. And Paul's like, guys, a little bit more complexity here. 
And so in earlier chapters, Paul adds the question of, yeah, but is it helpful? You know, he says, is it beneficial? Like, does it ultimately hurt you or harm you? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. And then he adds the second question. He says, okay, all things may be permissible, but, but I will not be, be mastered by anything. And so he's, you could really say a third question is, is it enslaving? Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, it's fine, but is it really good for you? Is this really going to help you where the Lord is calling you to go? No. Is it, does it have the potential to enslave you and, and actually take you down a road you don't want to go? Yes. So far, those three questions are pretty good. But you know what? All three of those questions still have to do with the individual. Paul now introduces a fourth question that is radical. And the question is, how will this affect others? Ah, what? Why do I have to think about that? How will this affect others? The community angle. Paul's saying, okay, listen, I... I, uh, it's, it, you, you may be right about your knowledge, but some other people through associations, former associations with idols. This is why I had you circle that word association. Every action has an association. Actually, every action has multiple associations. This is the power of communicative action. Our actions speak. The trick is they speak different things. They say different things. Now, learning what they say to different people is part of the joy and the challenge of living in community. Because you can do this Jesus and me thing. Oh, it's just me. I'm free, brother. I am not a legalist. <laughs> right, but you are bound and connected to your brother and your sister. So all of a sudden, correctness is not the only lens, but connectedness. It's not just the correctness of this action, but the connectedness of your life. But, but you realize your life is connected to all these other people, that if you do this, how will it affect others? How does this resonate? What, does this, what associations does this action have? Well, let's do a few case studies, shall we? Test cases. We'll start with something fun. How about rock music in the church? It's a good one because many of us are like, oh, I remember those days. Glad we're past it. Clearly, we've got drums and an electric guitar. We're okay. But you remember, some of you will, those were not easy transitions. There were a lot of people who certain instruments had certain associations with other activities, shall we say. And so there, it wasn't an easy thing to say, let's just use that in church. And so there was these careful things of like, well, maybe, and, uh, and then as those, as a particular style of music began to lose its associations, it began to be more malleable in different settings. We were able to say, oh, no, it's, it's okay. We can do this. We can, we can kind of work that. But, but in the seventies, it was like the devil's music, man. And then someone says, why should the devil have all the good music? <laughs> <laughs> a second kind of case let's take Halloween okay now some people say Halloween 
That's a day that honors witches and demons, and we are not participating in that. Get it. Someone else says, but it's the one day of the year that neighbors actually knock on each other's doors. Ooh, that's a good point. Someone will invent a track that is wrapped up in a candy or something like that. You know, unwrap the chocolate and there's a salvation message, you know. Every year, you're like, that exists, does it? Lord, have mercy. But every year, this is kind of a thing because you'll have some people that say, I am not going to participate in a feast day for darkness. I get it. Someone else says, this is our chance to sort of build bridges with our neighbors. This last Halloween was really fun. I think Facebook has just made all of this really fun. Because there's the bullying, and then there's the backlash to the bullying, and then there's the backlash to the backlash of the bullying. And it goes, you know, so this is what I saw on Facebook is someone says, I am not taking my kids trick-or-treating. And someone else says, do you know, we could awaken our children's imagination to the, the, the epic drama of good versus evil. And so this is a wonderful way to help introduce your children to the, the not-so-fantasy world of good versus evil. And so this is a great thing. And then someone else says, well, why are you bullying me into taking my kids trick-or-treating if I don't want to? And then someone else says, well, aren't you so prudish and old-fashioned? This is why Christians aren't getting anywhere. That and the public arguing thing, but you know... <laughs> And all of a sudden we realize, you know, we're we're not that different from what Paul's addressing here. We've got this thing that we're certain about, and then we've created an other that is less than us, and then we can write blogs and put posts that sort of bully that other person into thinking the way we think. uh, This is tricky. This should not be. I think what Paul tries to do here in chapter 8 and chapter 10 is to give us different lenses to process through this issue with. You know what's amazing is in chapter 10, he actually turns around and says, you know what, it's true there's only one God and so these idols have no power, but you know there are such a thing as demons. And he, he says, so be careful because you don't want fellowship with demons and then fellowship at the Lord's table. And so it's, you can almost imagine... Chapter, you know, this letter being read out loud, and when you get to the section that we call chapter 8, there's one group that's saying, mm-hmm, told you, no God but one God, you know. And then you get to chapter 10, but there are demons, and the other group's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, come on, somebody! <laughs> Which begs a bit of a, a, a perspective here. If you haven't learned to see an issue through somebody else's shoes you're not really having a dialogue. If you haven't learned to say, tell me why this is sensitive to you, rather than let me tell you why this is all right, say, can you tell me why this is sensitive to you? You, you, you actually, you'll learn a whole lot about another person. So, alcohol. For a long time, this has been kind of the thing of like, oh, I wish we Americans weren't like weren't so fussy about alcohol. You know in Europe, how many times have we heard that? You know in Europe. I was at a, a charismatic Anglican conference in Europe and right when they dismissed, the, the service was in this big tent, right when they dismissed and had altar ministry, the bar opened in the side of the tent. <laughs> Literally, they're like praying for people here and then drinks over there. It was like... 
But the question is not what they do in Europe or what we are in America. The question is, what are these associations like for you? Tell me your story. Could you imagine if as Christians we slowed down enough to say, tell me your story. What, what's happening here? What, what, what's this about for you? I asked permission to share this, but my, my dad was um, in his earlier career was in an, worked in the ad agency world, and it was his job to take clients around to kind of, you know, secure the accounts and make sure they renewed it or secure new accounts. And all of you business people know that that quite often that involves a drink or, or, or two. And um, and so there were these, you know, kind of Friday night with the guys or social drinking and that sort of thing, and nothing ever. Nothing ever bad, nothing that ever led to a, a lifestyle of, of drunkenness, and never drunkenness. And um, yet when, when he got saved, he said, I don't want any more connection to that kind of life. And so for him, it, was, it has been not a drop. Not a drop. It's not that I think it's wrong for you or wrong for you. It's just for me, these have associations, and I don't want it. If you slow down to pay attention to someone's story, you might learn that. Someone else will say, well, you know what, Mar- marijuana is not just this fun topic to me. In fact, it's, it's pretty devastating because all of my friends who smoked it in our younger years, nothing has come of their lives. They've ended up destroying, sabotaging their own careers and families. And, and, and so to me, this isn't a lighthearted question about, hey, is marijuana okay? To me, this is like massively derailing. You've got to pay attention enough to each other's stories. But you know, the other thing you've got to pay attention to is not just the stories, but you've got to pay attention to your own motives. Because you can use something for the wrong reasons. You can drink to celebrate, or you can drink to medicate a pain that you want to numb. And even though we say, well, the line is drunkenness, sure, the line is drunkenness, but you're on a dangerous path when you, when you are engaging in an activity that might be in the neutral zone, but you're doing it out of the wrong motivations. That your glass of wine is not like her glass of wine because your glass of wine is to numb the pain. And the gospel doesn't shame us for that. The gospel invites us out of that darkness and says, where can you become whole? Where can you become whole? That's, this is why we don't just pay attention to stories of other people. We also pay attention to our own story. Pay attention to our own motives. What's going on? Why am I, do, why am I asking this question? Why, why do I want to know? I think the big debate, the big discussion in Colorado because of the marijuana thing is at what level does it become Intoxicating. And some people say, well, from the first drag. Other people say, well, if you have it in this dose, it's medicinal, but a bit more than that, it's your high. And so we could get in this conversation on the specifics of levels and say, well, you know, drinking, drunkenness, medicinal, recreational, you know, there's, we, can, we, can, we can focus our whole conversation there, but you know what, we'd be missing what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, do you realize that your actions are connected to that 13-year-old? And that 12-year-old and that other person who's got this story, that, that your actions impact one another. <laughs> that the question is not, is it a sin? The question is, 
how is this going to affect the people that you have been placed in community with? And are you leading someone on a very dangerous path? Are you leading yourself on a dangerous path? Why are you asking these questions? These are all the kinds of things that the Spirit wants to stir up to say, Let, let's, get, let's dig a little bit. Say, Glenn, why? Why so much nuance? Why so much texture and like pay attention? I, I just want a rule. Just give me a rule, yes or no. You know, the Bible, interestingly enough, there's, there's an arc to the Bible's narrative. The Bible begins with the Torah, and you see in Deuteronomy these very clear lines, do this and you'll live, do this and you'll die, and they're like, okay, right? And then all of a sudden you have these prophet books that kind of say, well, there's a little more than just that. There's also justice and mercy and righteousness, and then you have the writings that use stories and kind of embellished, you know, stories artistically to kind of invite us into the complexity of life. You have Job that says, I did all those things. It didn't quite work out. I'm saying, yep. I had a seminary prophet that said, Proverbs says, do these things and life will work this way. Ecclesiastes says, I did and it didn't. So the whole of scripture begins with these black and white rules. And then as you get on into the Old Testament, there's much more nuance. And then finally you come to the person of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not unlike parenting. We tell our kids when they're little, don't run into the street. Then as they get older, hold my hand. We can cross the street. The street's not a lava pit, but we just hold my hand. Then we say, okay, look to your left, look to your right. Eventually we'll say, here's the keys. You can drive this thing on the street. God help us. (laughs) We do this because this is what maturing means. It means we're not just looking for the black and white. We're okay with the nuance because something has happened inside of us to make us mature. What is that something? See, Jesus, I said just a moment ago that all the scripture races up to this culmination point in Jesus. What does Jesus do? He says all of the law and the prophets are summed up in what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor like yourself. Now, wait a minute. Jesus, we just asked you for one. Why are you binding a second to it? Because love for God is inextricably connected to love for neighbor. That there's no Jesus in me religion in the Gospels. That it's always, if you follow Jesus, these become your brothers and your sisters. The least of these becomes your concern. That's why we have this serve the city thing today. That's why all of our meal groups, that's why we say blessed, broken, and given. That's why we say, look, we are not here just for ourselves. We are here because we understand that as we love Jesus more, that love is going to send us back out. Jesus forever binds love for God and love for neighbor together. And the beautiful picture of it is the cross. The vertical beam of our love for God and the horizontal beam of our love for neighbor. Jesus in himself ties these two things together. Jesus actually is this way. Paul talks about Jesus as the one who was strong who became weak. The one who was rich who became poor. 
the one who used his strength to lift others up, not as a license for his own behavior. Don't you think if, if there was ever a person who could have lived free and autonomous, it would have been the son of God? And yet the person who did not live free and autonomous, who gave his life away, the one who stopped at every turn, who spoke to a Samaritan woman, the one who called tax collectors and fishermen, the one who used his very strength to lift up the weak. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Jesus is how we know that we are known by God. Paul begins with that verse in verse 3 where he says, whoever loves God, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And I kept thinking this week, if maybe, if we keep digging past all the layers of what is their story and what is my motive and we keep digging deeper, maybe what we'll find at the bottom here, at the pit of the core of who we are, is this hunger to be known. And so some of us say, if I can follow all the rules correctly, maybe then I will be known by God. And someone else says, if I can show how free I am and how strong I am and how much I know, maybe then I will be known by God. And Paul says, listen, you are only free to know one another deeply when you trust that you are known by God. What is the fountain that we drink from that allows us to slow down in community, that allows us to say, wait a minute, don't just run away with your ideas and your philosophy. Let me slow down to pay attention to your life and your life and your life. What is the fountain that sustains me to be able to live that kind of love? It is when I know that I am known by God. Neither your religion, your rule keeping, nor your irreligion, your rule breaking is enough to ground you. The only thing that grounds you is the realization through the cross of Jesus Christ that you and I are known by God. We're known by God. And from that place of being known by God, we can then say, all right, I'm not a free acting individual. I belong to you. You belong to me. We belong to one another. God, give me the grace to know your story. May God give you the grace to know my story. May we be patient with one another so that together we can grow up into Christ who is the head. Amen?